Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Well Nerds Podcast. This is episode 119. My name is Slater, and I'm here with Adam and Caitlin. What's up? Hello. And we have a special guest this week. Uh, we have Dr. Matthew Savoka joining us. Uh, Matthew Savoka is a postdoctoral researcher in the Goldbogen Lab at Hopkins Marine Station at Stanford University. Um, and he grew up in New York. He got his undergraduate degree at Cornell University. And he completed his PhD in ecology at UC Davis. He's been awarded fellowships, including one from NSF, National Science Foundation. He's given a TED Talk about marine pollution, and he is also a science communicator in addition to a marine ecologist. So um, welcome, Matthew. Thank you for joining us. We're so excited to have you on. Yeah, thank you, Caitlin and uh, Slater and Adam for the opportunity to chat with you today about some of the stuff we've been up to. And uh, yeah, looking forward to it. Uh, it's really fun to be part of this community. And, um, you know, being on being on this podcast, I don't think you're really uh, a marine mammal or a cetacean biologist in Monterey until you've been on this podcast. So <laughs> <laughs> tell Jeremy that he has to be on here then. <laughs> yeah, good. Yeah, good luck. But uh, I, I'll, I'll let him know that I did it. And then uh, I'll tell him that he's he's on deck. So we've gotten Nick, two Nick from Ryan the lab so far. <laughs> Right. Now we have other good folks in the lab that I think would be really, really great guests as well. I see you've done uh, Dave Cade, and we'll definitely talk about the stuff that he's uh, he's done, uh, you know, in relation to the to the research that I've worked on. Um, but there are other folks in the lab who I think would make for quite good interviews for you all as well. Yeah. I mean, you guys are working on cool stuff over there, especially whale stuff. Yeah. Awesome. So um, you grew up on the East Coast, right? Um, so how did you kind of like get interested in biology or marine biology? Like how did that kind of come to be? So how I got into marine biology is somewhat a convoluted story. I'll try to tell somewhere between the abridged and unabridged versions. Uh, so I grew up in Staten Island, New York, which is the forgotten borough of New York City. Uh, and when I grew up there, I, I guess I'd always been interested in animals and nature and the environment and that kind of thing. I think a lot of kids are, but the difference between me and most kids, I guess, that I grew up with who, you know, we liked animals, traded animal facts and, you know, read Nat National Geographic or zoo books or whatever it is, is that I just mm -hmm. always kind of continued learning and loving that stuff. And I think a lot of other people that I grew up with just eventually were like, well, I got to go get a job and do something. Um, and you're not going to get a job, you know, being a wildlife lover. And I, you know, mm -hmm. I, I think for me, I just, I, 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 it's hard for me to work on something I don't care about. Mm -hmm. And so whenever I considered other, you know, career paths, for, oh, I'm talking like completely different fields, right? Um, I just could never see myself doing it and and putting out good work if I didn't care about what I was doing and I didn't think it was important. So, I mean, my earliest memory about like what I want to be when I grew up was in second grade or something like this. <clears throat> and as I think is probably typical, I said, oh, I want to be an accountant because that's what my dad was. And then I actually started to talk with him about his job in finance. And I remember thinking like, God, that sounds terrible. Who wants to do that? <laughs> <laughs> um, and then by my fifth grade yearbook, uh, I had, and why we had to have our, you know, dream job in a fifth grade yearbook. I don't know, but anyway, at that point <laughs> it was wildlife photographer. So, um, so I was already kind of like on that track 
buy my fifth grade yearbook. But um, in terms of Marine stuff, I think, you know, one of the things that might be surprising for folks is that I didn't, you know, grow up super engaged with the ocean beyond just like loving the natural world and all kinds of animals and ecosystems. You know, I wasn't a scuba diver or a surfer or anything like this. Mm -hmm. um, I, I love birds, actually. So I was initially a, a bird nerd. I know I'm on the whale nerd podcast now, but initially <laughs> I, was, I was a bird nerd. And uh, yeah, and that, that was really my gateway into, into the natural world and thinking about how ecosystems work and what animals can tell us about the state of the ecosystem. And yeah, so then in undergrad, I uh, did worked on my first research projects, bird related. And one of those projects was uh, on gulls, actually, at the Shoals Marine Lab, which is uh, Cornell and University of New Hampshire's jointly owned and operated marine station off the coast of Maine. And when I was there, I remember just kind of falling in love with seabirds, actually, in particular, uh, because they could tell us all about the state of the ocean. Um, they went out there and sampled the ocean for us and told us that, you know, about the health of the ocean. And they had really fascinating biologies and life histories. And I was, became really interested in seabirds. And so then I went to grad school and studied, focused on seabirds. Um, yeah. And so I didn't even start working with whales until I, uh, worked with Jeremy starting officially in 2018. So uh, I'm fairly new as far as a professional uh, marine mammal, marine mammalogist, but uh, I've always, I've been a whale nerd for quite some time. There you go. New convert. <laughs> yeah. Are you missing the birds? Well, you know, yes and no. I mean, I, I the, the great thing about birds is that they're everywhere. I mean, and you don't have to try too hard to, to, photograph birds, enjoy birds. And I think that's why they're such a great gateway for so many people into thinking about the environment and nature and those connections, because unlike, frankly, whales or any other type of animal that that are, you know, that you're really into, you don't have to go and dedicate a big trip and allocate money and resources and time to go see birds. You can just look out your window in most cases and, and see mm -hmm. some type of some type of birds that are around, hang up a bird feeder something like that, go to your local park. And I think that's the power of birds, actually. Um, so I would say, I mean, I miss the birds in the sense that, you know, I've been deserted by the the hardcore ornithology types that are like, you know, you study birds and that's it. And uh, <laughs> for me, it's just kind of like, what animals do we need to know more about? Do we need to answer good conservation questions on? Can we get people to rally behind? Um, and so, you know, whales were kind of a natural other one as well, but, uh, you know, I miss the birds somewhat, but, uh, I still get to have them in my life. So that's, that's pretty important to me. Yeah. Well, I, I feel like you went to like one of those places where it's like bird central, like Cornell's pretty renowned in the world yeah. bird world. <laughs> so. Yeah. Cornell is pretty birdy. And that's one of the reasons why I went there actually, um, was, you know, I was really oh, okay. encouraged in working with birds and, yeah, studying birds and their ecology. Uh, and yeah, that was, so that was really excited to do that, even in undergrad, definitely. Uh, cool. They also uh, study whales there. Uh, they have a big acoustic, whale acoustics mm -hmm. program there and bioacoustics generally, which of course birds, elephants, but also whales. So, um, but in undergrad, I didn't do any work with whales, but um, always really liked them. Nice. Well, I mean, whales and birds associate together a lot. So 
Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm one of the people that on the whale watches or even on field work, you know, there'll be like some interesting shear water or storm petrol. And I'm just like, wait, 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 we got to go look at that. Or like, what is <laughs> that, that guy? Like, You're that guy. Or, or, yeah. or like, you know, we'll be out doing field work or something like this. And it's like, you know, if we see the, the locally, the now locally famous short-tailed albatross or short-tailed mm-hmm. albatrosses, um, it's like, oh no, 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 we have to, we have to like go and see this thing. I should just <laughs> say that I've never actually seen the short-tailed albatross. And I believe at least some of you have, right? Have you, I think I just have. later. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have photos of it. Yeah. And I'm very, yes. And I'm very jealous because uh, that's uh, <laughs> as a seabirder and a, 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 you know, bird person. Uh, yeah. That's uh, like a Holy grail bird. So that's really pretty amazing. Um, but yeah, I'm one of those people. I'm like a whale watch. It's like, oh my God, we have to forget about this humpback. We've seen 50 humpbacks already. Who cares about this? There's a, <laughs> but okay. But what if, what if there's killer whales hunting a gray whale? Are you going to look at the, are you going to look at the birds? Or are you going to look at the killer whale predation going on? Well, again, I mean, what kind of bird is it, right? Is if it's well, usually there's, there's usually there's of, like, albatross black, there. Yeah, it's black-footed <laughs> albatross or. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, come on, black-footed albatross. No, 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 no. Common. It's gotta be. <laughs> I thought now, if you were saying short-tailed albatross versus. Killer right, maybe, whale uh, there's some storm petrels around. <laughs> no. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to go with, I'm going to go with killer whale on gray whale predation. I think that's kind of like the equivalent of like a cheetah hunting a gazelle or a yeah. lion hunting a wildebeest in the African savanna in terms of animal interactions. And that's really what I get excited about. But if you're talking about short-tailed albatross and those other things, that's like ooh, king. That's yeah. gonna be really tough for me. Yeah, that's up there. <laughs> we had a big group of birders. Um, from, where are they from, Caitlin? The UK? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, most of them are from the and UK. We had this crazy, predate. it was with a sea lion, actually, but they were just throwing it around. <laughs> and these guys were not watching it because there was black-footed albatross. Who, I don't remember what there was, but they were just, I was like, Come on, look at the whale. Like, yeah, well, <laughs> you know, birds are special. Bird. Bird. They are, yeah, they are, they are co- particularly committed to their craft of looking yeah. at, yes. finding, identifying, photographing yes. birds. So, birders are a different breed for sure. Yeah, <laughs> that's okay. We need them all. No. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. I mean, when we talked to Robin Baird a couple years ago, um, they had taken enough pictures of a certain kind of storm petrel in the Hawaiian Islands that they were like contributors to a paper making the bird two different species so like even the whale people you know are paying attention to the birds yeah i mean you know they and and, you know even back in grad school what the first paper i wrote from my phd which was published in 2014 uh we, we we very specifically and explicitly talked about this um sort of group foraging of, of seabirds and whales and how they they help each other out uh, at sea finding food and exploiting patches of food and so on so yeah i mean you know again it's uh seabirds and whales are friends they're not they're not foes yeah it's funny even for us like as, as photographers and stuff you know it's like all right where are the birds like you know when the yeah. birds are there like you'll follow the birds around and then you and they hit the surface of the water. You're like, oh, there's there's some bait there. Watch out mm-hmm. for them. You know, yeah, so it, it it's cool that you have the background of of both, I guess, like the land or the air and the sea, right? And and the whole ecosystem and and how it plays together. It's super cool. Yeah, yeah, that's always been interesting to me. Not just one yeah. species or whatever, but how the whole system works together. Definitely. Yeah. Um. So why did you come to the West Coast um, for graduate school then? Uh, well, I didn't, I wanted to try something other than the Northeast, which is the only thing I'd known. Actually, the first time I ever, um, 
went to California and maybe even saw the Pacific Ocean was when I was interviewing for grad school um, at UC Davis. And I remember very specifically, so I was going to college in upstate New York at the time. And, you know, when they do grad school interviews, it's the winter. So in the winter in upstate New York, you know, it's probably below zero. Miserable. Definitely, definitely below freezing. Uh, really unpleasant unless you like super cold and snow stuff, which I'm not <laughs> a particular fan of. Um, and so, yeah. Yeah. And so I remember um, coming to California, visiting UC Davis. And this was back at the time when it still rained in California in the winter, which as we know, it doesn't <laughs> do not anymore. Right. Exactly. That's so not for a long that's time. <laughs> normal. Yeah, that's normal. Yeah. So this was back in 2009 or early 2010. Oh, wow. And, uh, yeah, yeah. So I remember coming out from my grad school interview and it was raining, but it was like, you know, 65 and drizzly or something like that, which to me was paradise in whatever it was, December, January, yeah. something like that, February. Yeah. You know, and, and I remember all, you know, these folks that I was talking with at Davis, professors, other grad students, uh, whatever, they were profusely apologizing to me. Oh, we're so sorry about this weather. It's not yeah. really bad, blah, blah, <laughs> they blah. They think it's so miserable. <laughs> and I was just like, you know, it's all about perspective. This is, this, is, totally this is. might as well be a Caribbean island to me right now. I mean, this is absolutely <laughs> yeah, Adam was saying it was cold this morning, huh, Adam? Or was it, it was cold. Well, <laughs> I'm used to 75 and sunny in Santa Barbara, so. I moved well, like, I mean, Oregon, it's all about so perspective, right? <laughs> all about perspective. Yeah. In 2017, <laughs> I came from Davis. And, you know, compared to Davis, it's cold here, right? So it's all about perspective. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> Could you tell us a little bit about your work with marine plastic? I think you did a paper, right, on marine fish ingesting plastic in 2021? Yeah, I've, uh, I guess if I had to say, like, the one thing that I've worked the most on, like, specific topic, it's animals eating plastic, basically how plastic flows through marine food webs. And... Should we care about it? Why should we care about it? What effects is it having? Is it increasing or decreasing over time? Those types of questions. Can we use animals as indicators of the broader pollution of the environment and the food web? Those types of questions. Um, and yeah, so so that paper that you're talking about, uh, basically, one of the things I've been interested in recently, I would say generally as a scientist, I think we have we being the scientific community broadly, not you know our research group or whatever, have just boatloads of data, right? We, you know, scientists are obsessed with going out and, and collecting and generating original data, but there's so much information and knowledge to be gained by just harvesting, mining, thinking about the data in aggregate. Um, and so that's kind of what that paper was about, which was taking at the time, everything published on fish eating plastic around the world and asking a couple of sort of straightforward questions, which is how widespread is this? Uh, are there any sort of predictors or determinants of plastic consumption amongst fish? So like what trophic level you're at, where you feed, uh, geography, where you are in the world, that type of thing, to be able to ultimately predict um, which species might be at risk that are either undersampled or unsampled that type of thing. And then also to see if we could detect any changes over time in terms of how much plastic fish are eating over time. And so, yeah, I mean, we didn't actually collect any original data for that study, right? But there's so much 
out there now. Um, starting around 2010, this topic just absolutely exploded. Of course, we knew about plastic in the ocean since about the 1960s, 1970s. Um, but, you know, in about 2010 or so, this topic just completely exploded uh, in popularity. And there's just so much, you know, data that more or less boils down to we looked for plastic ingestion in this species and yes, we found it or no, we didn't, or, you know, here's what they were eating, you know, just kind of this basic information that by itself is interesting and useful, but in aggregate, I would argue is even more interesting and useful. And that's, that's kind of what that, that paper was about. So like how, how screwed are we? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you know, I, I just wrote, I'm happy to link it in your, in, in, on your, on your website or whatever. I just wrote an article kind of about this. And I think, uh, you know, we don't know. And I know that people don't want to, I'm afraid. I'm saying, I know people don't want scientists to say that, but, you know, I think the thing about plastic in the food web is that it, it can't be good, right? So it's either neutral to bad. And the question is like within that How part bad. of the spectrum, How bad is it? Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so we are, kind of trying to figure that out now. And I think depending on a lot of factors, it might not be as bad as some people think, or it could be just as bad or worse. And mm -hmm. it likely is really dependent on things that may or may not have to do even with the plastic itself. So one of the things that I was writing about recently, um, just published a popular article on, is that, you know, plastics are just one of a huge number of synthetic pollutants in the marine environment, not just in the marine right. environment, the global <clears throat> environment. Right. Um, and people are really passionate about plastics, right? Because we know what they are. Everyone understands and has plastics as part of their daily lives. But I think what folks don't understand is that these plastics are, um, you know, are mixed with all these different chemicals and all of our I don't know if I'm allowed to curse here. I almost cursed. I'm from New York. Sorry. <laughs> Go for it. I, I kind of cursed. We only have a few young listeners. So one every once <laughs> like, in a while. I'll try to control bad. myself. But 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 the point is, is that, you know, um, the, this chair I'm sitting in, these clothes I'm wearing, if you're wearing makeup, if you have a, a child and they have baby toys, if you have food that's encased in this or that, there's all these synthetic chemicals that are incorporated in the products that we use every single day that have some somewhat unknown health consequences and some known and bad health consequences mm -hmm. that um, are quite problematic and we really need to start dealing with, but the general public doesn't even understand that this is happening, I feel, right? Yeah, like BPA-free like plastic, like that's right. the one yeah. thing that's like kind of so, common. No. So, this yeah. is, right. so, that, so that's the thing, right, is like, we determine something can be harmful, right? BPA is just one example, right? And then it's like, oh, cool, BPA-free. Well, guess what? There are hundreds of thousands of those types of chemicals. Not right. this yeah, PCBs but, and... Oh, man, I mean, I know you're naming no, the ones... Right? Everything. You're naming yeah, the ones we, know, we know of, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you're naming the ones not only that we know of, but we know are bad and are well-regulated. DDTs, yeah. PCBs, yeah. PBDEs, those are like flame retardants. Yeah, um, yeah. But then there's then there is a world of chemicals that are in everything, plasticizers, PFAS, UV stabilizers, mm -hmm. I mean, on and on and on and on and on that I don't even think people realize are in things. Yeah. Well, uh, and it's changing all the time too, as people figure out how to blend different materials. Oh yeah, right. So so the question of like how screwed are we from plastics? 
I think honestly, my honest thought is like, maybe not as screwed as like the general public thinks we are because there's been such hysteria about plastics. I think that could be, my statement there could be misconstrued of like, oh, scientist says we don't need to worry about plastics. That's not what I'm saying. <laughs> what I'm saying is I think we're appropriately as a society concerned about plastics, but I'd like to raise the level of concern about these other things that are, you know, related to plastics. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, for sure. Plastics are, are so interesting because you can apply the same things you learn for plastics to like anything else. Like I, I did an independent study um, at my community college in 2017, um, studying plastic abundance in a, in a very secluded bay in Baja. And we did it, we did plankton toes and different toes in three different locations. And in, in probably the most remote place I've ever been to, there's still plastic microplastics there right but then you go into a step further right it's like okay these are microplastics or the secondary microplastics like okay if they are they aren't where is where are they coming from are they coming from the town close by are they floating in from california and going around the baja peninsula mm-hmm. and then it's like are they actually being ingested by other species and it's like you, you have so many different avenues you can go with plastics that I think if you understand that, you can also apply that to chemicals. So I think once yeah. you start to understand the plastic issue, you can kind of relay that to really anything else because it, it, they bring up a lot of questions. Yeah, completely. And, I, and that's why I like to use plastics as like a Trojan horse to talk about yeah. other things. Um, it's a gateway topic. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it really is. And I think the key the key that we've done with uh, plastics and, and society, which is great, is get people passionate about this topic. Yeah. Um, and I mean, man, we really need to harness that model and apply it to biodiversity loss, climate change, yeah. chemical pollution, whatever. Um, yeah. And, yeah. Anyway, and I think I think that would really be helpful to think about, you know, um, in an epist- you know, epistemological way, how we did that. And it might've just kind of been by accident. Like people just got excited about it. Like scientists said, Hey, look at this thing that we're finding. And you know, people it was are, a, it was a, a plastic straw and a turtle's nose. And right. Yep. You know, right. it started right. from there and it's one viral video that, that hits well, people those, a certain way. Those pictures of those albatross chicks, you know, yeah, the carcass that on the shore and the stomach where the stomach used to be is full of plastic bottle caps a, lighters all kinds a of plastic stuff. ocean that's like one of my favorite documentaries on Netflix. yeah yeah, yeah. It's, mm-hmm. yep. you know, it's it's stuff like that it's netflix netflix working with with ideas like that you know it's i think it's super mm-hmm. cool so yeah absolutely absolutely um yeah i mean you know and this is fun though this is why going back to the initial thing that you mentioned was like you know in second grade when i was, I was like oh i want to be an accountant and then i learned my dad did i was like uh and then I'm like, these are, then I thought about like, what's my passion, right? And animals really just are my passion. Yeah. Right? And then uh, thinking more deeply over time as I grew up, it's like, well, they need our help. You know, they need an advocate. They can't vote. They can't speak for themselves, at least not in our languages. Um, and so they, they deserve and require protection and, you know, not enough people are standing up for them. And so a lot of our decisions as a you know, global society obviously have impacts on on these different communities, species, populations, and so on. And uh, you know, someone needs to be to be the voice for them as well. I'm not saying I'm the only one doing this. Obviously, there are yeah. many thousands of really dedicated, 
people that 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 work on this, but I'm happy to be part of that, you know, constituency for 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 them. Yeah, I mean, if people can make the leap when they look at these topics about like really realizing one, there's no away, right? Like it doesn't go away. It goes somewhere on the planet. But also that like we're kind of all responsible to each other in this situation because debris and chemicals don't care about your borders. Mm -hmm. You can't have a contained closed loop system in your country for waste. So we're all in it together. for better or worse yeah and that's the thing about like i I think anything like plastics same thing with whales or 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 productivity in the oceans biodiversity like once people start to realize like you if you look at the system as a whole versus like okay plastics are really bad in this region but like that's not affecting me but it's like it is affecting you it's it's all one giant connected earth right that's that's the way i look at it and that's partly the problem is getting people to care about things that are not happening in their area it's true Mm -hmm. (laughs) like climate change is happening in all the areas right Right. Right. some faster than others yeah yeah and i think you know what's been really powerful about what's happened in the last i'd say like 10 or 15 years or so and I, i mean i've seen this happen in real time as we all have, but I call this the era of like, you know, climate change, for example, coming to our doorstep, right? So, you know, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, well, when I when I visited California, California was still wet and the fires were regular, but, you know, contr- you know, like controlled, right? And now California is parched and boiling and on fire. And you can't deny that even I have only been in California for 12 years, just like, man, this is a different California than I came to, right? Mm -hmm. And so people who've been here for 20, 30, 40, 50 years have seen even more of that change. And I mean, it's hard to deny at this point. Yeah, they do. For sure. (laughs) I mean, they still do, but you're not wrong. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, mean, yeah, anyway, that's a whole nother thing. We don't have to go there, but (laughs) I do see perception shifting. Yeah. I mean, you know, the more... Uh, let's say former climate deniers now might say, well, climate change is happening, but our it's not that bad. Yeah. 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 Right. And that yeah. even that is a step is a step. Right. Yeah. 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 Well, we can shift away from, <laughs> it's a good segue opportunity to shift away from uh, your work with plastics and, you know, just the state of the world. And I, we really want to talk to you about the paper that came out last year um, the baleen whale prey consumption based on high resolution foraging measurements. Cause wow, we were so stoked when that came out. Article. So yeah, <laughs> Slater's like, oh, my favorite scientific paper. Nice. All right. Um, yeah. I'd like to hear that. So, That's great. Uh, just kind of want to go back to like the whole start of how, like, how did you collect the data? Like, were you in the field? Like that kind of side of it first, before we talk about the results and like the impacts of the paper and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think honestly the best place to start is to take even one step back of like why why did this paper happen in the first place? And, yeah. and the reason is going back to what we were just talking about is I was interested in kind of quantifying to our to the extent possible or creating a quantitative prediction really to the extent possible of how much plastic whales are eating, filter mm-hmm. large filter feeding whales, right? And there's Two, two routes in which large filter feeding whales uh, ingest microplastics. That's through the water, because uh, they filter the water, obviously. 
and through their prey, right? And what I found after, and and I remember thinking like, okay, you know, no one's applied this to plastic specifically, but surely we have numbers on these two sort of critical items in in terms of their life history, life history whales, the big baleen whales, how much water they're filtering, how much prey they're eating. And what I found uh, after doing some digging was that we don't really have numbers based on field data for living baleen whales for either of those things. Yeah. And so then started a two or three year kind of diversion of like, well, to do this thing I want to initially do, we need to get these, um, get better estimates for how much food these whales are eating. So um, yeah, that, that's, that's kind of how that started. And uh, I was involved in some of that field work for this, for the, 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 all, the paper that we're talking about that came out last year, but most of that uh, work had been conducted before I got to the lab. Um, mm-hmm. And so what I was, uh, what I was primarily tasked with doing was to, again, kind of like with the uh, fish plastic meta-analysis that we were talking about earlier, was synthesizing a huge amount of data um, from all these different tag deployments that uh, a bunch of different collaborating lab groups, for which Jeremy Goldbogen's group is one of the one of the main ones, has been putting out all these tags on whales all over the world for, well, over 10 years now. Um, and, and uh, more recently been collecting uh, measurements of the, the prey, prey density uh, in these patches that we know whales were feeding on and measuring whales with drones. And so combining these metrics, uh, we're able to actually use field data from living animals to, we think, better estimate how much food uh, these whales are eating on a day in which they're eating, which these whales don't eat every day. So that's an important point as well. Yeah. So how like how shocked were you guys by the results? Because it totally blew what we thought we do about how much they eat. Like out I have of the to water. go back and edit like a hundred captions of whale facts <laughs> that I've said over the years. <laughs> well, well, yeah. I mean, I think you know, I think all the old estimates sort of didn't. And there's there, we could do a whole episode on this, but quite frankly, it's not the most exciting thing to talk about in a podcast. But the old estimates, I think, you know, didn't factor in. The, the the really dynamic life and environment that these whales live in, right? So essentially like the old estimates of which there were several, I mean, primarily they were metabolic estimates, right? So if we know a dolphin needs to eat this much, if we scale that up to a, a humpback or blue whale, then they should eat this much. And, you know, if we kind of think about that across an average of a feeding season or an average of a year, it works out to this, right? But as we know, people who, you know, no one understand the way baleen whales live for the most part, um, they aren't eating every day and they aren't even eating every month. And even within the feeding season, when they're up in Monterey, right, they're eating like crazy most of the time or a lot of the time, but they go for days or weeks, even within the feeding season without eating. So what that means, and this is, I think, generally kind of the, the bigger picture here is like, on a day when you know the conditions are good, they are really highly adapted and evolved to stuff in as much as they can. Um, and some of those numbers are really, really incredible, right? I, I mean, you know, I, I remember kind of early on. I think, uh, you know, this is maybe not uncommon when you find a surprising result. Like kind of early on, you know, when you start to look at the data, it's not like finalized yet, but you can kind of see early on that the top ends especially of some of these estimates are like, are wild, right? I mean, how often is that happening in reality is hard to say, 
Um, because again, it's biased when we're when we're taking this data, right? Like Jeremy's group um, and these other groups that we work with, we study whales when they are feeding, right? So what that means is it's much harder to extrapolate to a year, to a season, to a month. I mean, we do it, but as soon as you start doing that, the uncertainty grows and grows, right? right? And so we admit that some that our data are from like these really good conditions, right? Because that's when we study them. We study them when they're feeding on the feeding grounds with really good conditions. I mean, we're not, we don't tend to tag whales when they're sleeping or migrating or whatever. Um, so we really get them when they're, you know, at these feeding buffets. And I mean, like, I don't know, because again, I, I haven't been in this, you know, working with whales for that long, but I mean, if you look at some of this tag data, when they're feeding, that is, I mean, they can feed for sometimes days without stopping. Like usually they stop yes. at night, usually, but there are at least a couple multi-week tags that we have. Um, and when I say we, I mean like this broader group of many researchers that we've, we were able to, you know, uh, work with their data. This is primarily uh, James Falbush and John Kalambakitis at uh, Cascadia Research Collective. They put on out these really amazing uh, multi-week or multi-day uh, high-resolution tags. Um, and there are a several instances uh, for blue and fin whales that they have in their data where these whales feed for one, two, three days without stopping. I mean, they stop to breathe, of course, but like yeah. they don't like really take a break. I mean, they, they often do at night, but if the conditions are good at night, they'll just keep going. Um, for like it's 24, 30 machines hours. When it comes it's, I mean, it's, it's opportunity, right? Like when the conditions yeah. are right, the food's there and, and you, you're in your feeding season, like you have to gorge yourself. I feel like the, yeah. the, the fact, and that's just the, the way they do it. Right. It's cause you don't know when your next meal is right. They're opportunistic. Yeah, no, yeah exactly. I mean, it's, sometimes they travel like the freaking blue whales feed from the tip of Baja to the Gulf of Alaska, you know, it's like, and you find a hot spot and then it's like, all right, well, it's time. This is what I've been waiting for. Right. I'm so. stopping. <laughs> I'm stopping. This is it. But still, when you're, looking at, when you're looking at that top end and you're getting to like, you know, double digits of tons of food consumed in a day, I would still be like, is this map right? Like, is this yeah, and, right? Yeah, and we, we, did, we did a lot of that. I mean, we did a lot of that. Right. I mean, and I think again, talking about like double digits of tons, I mean, I think a lot of that comes down to um, translating acoustic measurements into bio biomass measurements. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and I think we get mesmerized by, and I think right, understandably so, get mesmerized by the total weight of the food, right? But of yeah. course, yeah. If the whales can process it, the weight isn't what they're after. They're after the energy. They're after, after right. the calories, yeah, calories. nutrients, right. that type of thing, right? So I think one of the things that's that's also interesting is not just how much they eat, but like the fact that if you look at the energy density, and we're trying to do more refined studies on these types of exact questions, but let, let, for a humpback whale, for example, that can and do eat fish and krill, and they can switch in Monterey Bay, um, what we found, and again, we're trying to find, we're trying to do more work to get more precise, you know, estimates of this, but it, they might eat, you know, three, four, five tons of krill, this is a humpback whale, or one or two tons of fish or something along those lines, right? But energy-wise, that's about the same, 
mm-hmm. right? So that, that to me was also kind of amazing, right? Is yeah. that they're yeah. kind of, you know, obviously probably not consciously, but they're able to kind of coalesce on, okay, this is good. This is what I need. Even if the, the actual mass of the food is completely different, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. How do they just energy budget and decide which prey type, if both are available, you know, how do they figure out, oh, well, this school of fish is better than the density of this krill or, you know, how do they decide what they're eating for the day? That's so right. amazing when we have those days here offshore where it's like 12 blue whales and 25 humpbacks all within, you know, a mile of each other. And are the humpbacks just diving down and getting anchovies or are they switching? And, Cause they're, you know, that both is going on right there. Like, that's pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think there are certain times I don't have to tell any of you, obviously, that Monterey Bay is a really special place, right? I mean, yeah. but if you think about the just the biomass of these prey species that need to be around to support that level of top predator biomass that's in, like you said, a couple dozen humpbacks and maybe a dozen blue whales is, is an exceptional amount of krill and fish. And yeah, um, yeah. so another part about this paper is, so, you know, for Eastern North Pacific blue whales, uh, it it seems within the realm of possibility, and it becomes almost a question more of physio- digestive physiology than it does about feeding rate and amount to put it in their mm-hmm. bodies, which is to say that it seems like eating 10 to 20 tons a day is quite plausible. I think then the next level question, which is wild, because if you before this, if you looked on, you know, if you asked the internet, how much food does a blue whale eat a day, you'd get four, five, six tons, something like that. Mm-hmm. And I think if you take that and kind of like average it out across every day of the feeding season, that might be what you get. But in reality, what I think what it turns out it's probably more is, is like zero, zero, 15, zero, 20, zeros, you know, yes. like, like 20, 20, 20, zero, zero, two, two, you know, like something like that. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, because man, when they are feeding, they are feeding and that <laughs> yeah. it's not, they, they, they don't take a break for a siesta. They don't take a break for anything if the food is there. Um, yeah. Anyway, so it's uh, yeah. I, I, but as I mentioned earlier, these are we think kind of more the upper bound estimates because of these biases and when we're collecting this data. We are collecting them when they are at their buffets, mm-hmm. right? Or not, or we don't have as good a data to kind of get at seasonal or annual estimates. We provide some, but we try to be cautious in our wording of, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty here, which I think is is exciting as a scientist, right? Because, you know, then you can say, okay, let's do a study to try to reduce this uncertainty or that uncertainty moving forward. Do you, do you think you have um, a guess or an estimate of how many gallons of water a blue whale or humpback whale could take in their mouth at one time? Oh, yeah. Um, I used to have this on the top, off the top of my head, but for some reason, oh yeah, okay. So I have it in meters cubed, but the issue is like, what is a meter cubed, right? So a humpback whale, we're talking about like a hundred meters cubed, roughly. Um, now, what is a meter cubed? To me, a meter cubed doesn't sound that big. Does it sound big to you? A meter cubed doesn't sound that big. To yeah, me. it sounds three big. Feet, like I three can't like across, hold three that. Feet. <laughs> like three feet like that. I mean, it doesn't, it's like okay, yeah. like one meter, right? A hundred of those. It's bigger. But than- it's a, but a meter cubed is a thousand liters. And that's the way that, I mean, like, as I, you know, you can start to think about like liters, right? So a meter yeah. cubed is a thousand liters. So a hundred meters cubed. I mean, what is that? Uh, no way. There's no way. This a million. 26,000 gallons. 
Yeah, I mean that right. So it's like it's like a hundred meters right. cubed, hundred cubic meters for a a blue well. Now, and the weight of a car. There's no way that they could take twenty six thousand gallons. What is and, a swimming pool? And a, right, so so hundred thousand um, gallons or hundred thousand. I think it's something like one fifth yeah. of an Olympic swimming pool or something like that. I mean, this is all stuff that that we can look yeah. up and verify. But um, I mean, yeah, I mean, blue whales are huge, right? Say the thing that everyone knows, right? But we can repeat it over and over again. Yeah. It doesn't get any less amazing what they can do. Um, but what we know is that they double if they take a full gulp, which we think they do most of the time. They double their body volume. Um, they double their, if you can include the water as part of their weight, they'll double their weight, um, you know, and with a, a, hum, a blue whale with um, a full mouth of food and prey, uh, that whole animal could be something like 200 tons or more. Um, That's which, amazing. You know, <laughs> like, losing they, it. <laughs> don't get how, it's like, no matter how many times you show people a blue whale or any whale, they just don't understand how big they are. And like, even mm -hmm. if they're rubbing on your boat, it's still, you're only seeing the top half of the whale. You know what I mean? Yeah. That eight to 10% of the whale. And it's just yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, and, and I think the other thing that I think is a nice thing to remind people is, is to be respectful of these animals, right? I mean, this is a really, really spectacular thing that we get to see here locally off the coast of California, Monterey Bay specifically, but reminding folks that, you know, there's reasons why we need to give these whales their distance and, and treat them with respect. And the reason that I go back to is another one of Jeremy's papers, which, which he led was published in 2019, showing the heart rate of a blue whale while it was feeding. Maybe you saw that one. If not, I can definitely share it with you. I believe it's open access so anyone can read it. Um, but what happens when a blue whale is feeding physiologically is they go into extreme, uh, bradycardia when they dive. So when when we, any air-breathing mammal, and I think this is probably true for birds too. So I want to say almost any air-breathing animal, but definitely any air-breathing mammal, the dive response is to lower your heart rate, right? To mm -hmm. conserve oxygen. That's primarily why you're doing that. Um, blue whales do that too. And their heart rate couldn't go down to as low as two beats a minute, which is the lowest heart rate ever recorded. But more typically when they're diving and feeding, it's in the range of like four to eight beats a minute, something like that. But then when they come up to the surface, they're at, up at like 35 to 40 beats a minute, which for people is really slow. But for an animal the size of an airplane, that is incredibly fast. That would be like the equivalent of our heart rate beating at 200 beats a minute. So they're essentially at their physiological maximum in both low heart rate and high heart rate when they're feeding. So they're at this like incredibly challenging energetic knife edge. Um, and, and, and so I think the point of this, especially for uh, Slater, I know who does his, uh, some of his whale tours, right. And maybe Adam or Kayla are involved in those. I don't All know. of us do. Yeah. We yeah. All we do. all do whale yeah, watching. <laughs> yeah. So I think one, one thing to, to share with, with, with your folks is that it might seem like these whales, when you see, when the people see them, it's like, oh, look at it. It's kind of lazing about. It's, you know, it's, it's, yeah. you know, it's, oh, it's breathing. Oh, da, da. But the, the way I explain it to people is these animals are eating a buffet while running a marathon. And then they do that three, they run three marathons in a row and eat three buffets in a row, right? Like that's, that's 24. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's their day, right? I mean, now sometimes I saw a whale, we saw a couple of whales off Hopkins the other day that were just hanging. It was a mom and calf and they were like yeah. literally just floating. They weren't eating, they were hanging out. Um, you know, but a lot of times in Monterey, when we see these whales, they are in un undergoing extreme exertion 
And so how would you like it if you just ran a marathon and when you, or like you just sprinted essentially until you were out of breath. And then when that happened, five cars pulled around you and had cameras in your face, right? Like it's not <laughs> really a pleasant experience. So that, that, you know, there's a reason why we need to respect these animals and give them, give them their space. Hmm. Tired because they're working so hard. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. totally. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And if we want to see more blue whales moving forward, we need to let them do that so they can create baby blue whales. More blue whales. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, well, yeah. So then I guess it just makes the shipping lane factor just so much more stressful. Like, if you could explain that to management, like this animal is literally pushing the biological extremes of what it can do. And now we're asking it to do it in high speed traffic. Right. Do it while like crossing a highway. Yeah. And, and, you know, we don't fully understand why whales get hit by ships so often, but I think one of the reasons why, and this is not just me thinking this, but I think one of the reasons why is because they're, you know, they're exhausted, right? I mean, like when they're coming up to breathe, which is when they get hit, um, if they're feeding anyway, uh, they're, they're, they're exhausted, right? They might not have the energy to kind of get out of the way. Um, but I think with that conservation issue, as with others involving whales, we we know the solution. The question is, can we actually implement it? And the solution is mm -hmm. slow down ships, and that works yeah. really effectively. Um, but we have to have the the I want to say political public will to do so. But we know that it works. Well, it's like in Santa Barbara, they just made the the slow down mandatory, but even even then, there, we still get boats, vessels, ships that are going twenty two knots through the channel because it's. It's more, it's financially better for them to, to keep that speed than to get the fine for the mandatory slowdown. You know, it's yeah. like, yeah, it's like, so you really want that Amazon package to be there the next day. It's like, that's, that's what it kind of costs sometimes, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And so expedited shipping, expedited world commerce, like it's just the way yeah, our world goes, wrong. I guess. You're not wrong. And I, I think what I would love to see moving forward is more options given to the consumer right because occasionally i don't want to act holier than thou occasionally like no i need that thing tomorrow like for I, sure for sure you know but 95 percent of the time if it's like you know you can wait four five ten days for this but we'll slow down ships to save whales or something you could add a million yeah. different things here they could put um, that as an if they put imagine they put that an option, as an option yeah. though like you save five bucks it comes three days late or something like that. You know what I mean? At checkout, if they start putting those words, people are like, oh, I just saved a whale. You know what I mean? Like, totally. I, that's what I'm saying. I, I hope cool, we actually. see more options like this moving forward, not just for whales, but for like sustainable fisheries or or, yeah. or carbon emissions for whatever it is you're doing. You know, I, I think I think I think people are hungry for these types of uh, sustainable options. And I hope to see more of them moving forward. Dang, I never thought about that. That'd be really cool at a checkout. If I ever sell yeah. a product, I'm going to put that at checkout. <laughs> Save a whale, get it in a, get it in a couple of years. <laughs> I mean, I think I, I think the ultimate issue, as 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 Adam mentioned, is the the convoluted nature of these supply chains, right? It's like mm -hmm. you might say that, but then then you have to talk. Yeah. Then how do you, you coordinate that with yeah. all the shipping and yada yada? I think, and, and this gets to be well way beyond my yeah. expertise. But that's yeah. Anyway, it's yeah, it's crazy. Um, so if this is this is my big thing because I want to see it, I just want to see it with my eyeballs. If a blue whale can eat twenty tons of of krill in a day, why the heck haven't I seen one lunge feed at the surface? 
<laughs> well, <laughs> no, it's like even 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 in Monterey. Like when was the last time? When was the last I, I, time I, I, I saw I, I, one lunch feeding at the surface consistently? Like twenty sixteen? No, last fall I was out with Bob Talbot and they had a blue whale lunch feed. I just wasn't in that mile. I was maybe once, there. but it's, I get it. It's, it's krill. We're missing it's it all krill, the time. Like like um sensitivity to light <laughs> and everything, and they typically feed lower. But it's like yeah, I, 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 see I, it, I, I was. I was just gonna say, I mean, you're friends with you're friends with Slater, right? I mean, so yeah, some of the the only the only footage, <laughs> like really, that I've ever seen. There's yeah, there's I mean, like honestly, I'm from boys. Australia and stuff, but yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so and I've I've seen it once. I have some pictures and some video of it. Um, Dang it! I'm the only one that hasn't seen it in this group. Dang it, yeah. I, I, it it is it is one of like my top probably five wildlife experiences ever to see yeah, that. That's what I'm saying. It's like it this. is. Oh. Yeah, it is. <laughs> but it's you know it's very hard to predict because yeah. they what they need and this is some more of Jeremy's cool work has shown this but what they need are these dense patches and if the patches aren't dense enough then they actually lose energy feeding right so like mm-hmm. and this is also something that I think would blow people's minds is like imagine if you ate something but just the energy expended to bite the thing wasn't worth it right yeah it's like celery. <laughs> Oh. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, calorically, it'd be like, yeah, if you just like ate ice or something or ate celery. I wish I had that discipline. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, you know what? That's not going to be enough. Or that's Except if you're a whale, you don't want that discipline. Yeah, exactly. You want to eat the thing that's going right. to help you gain you the most no weight. Rules. So, so, the, so the issue is that when krill is at the surface, usually it's not dense enough. Usually it's more, it's more spread out than when it is at depth. That's really the issue, right? And so you need to have this perfect sort of confluence of oceanographic and ecological events where you have a dense surface patch of krill which are just which is just not that common the whales don't care where the where, it's at, right, where it is, is. They'll, yeah they'll, they'll feed at zero meters and they'll feed it you know they can't really feed much deeper than three four hundred meters but anywhere in there or maybe they can but they just don't because the krill never go deeper than that but in, in any case they don't care where it is right i mean yeah. they they'll just eat it wherever it is and one of the, another one of the cool things that that Jeremy's, I think, work has, has shown is that the depth of the prey doesn't really impact the energetics of the feeding at all or, impa- okay. or, is, or is super uh, marginal, really That marginal. was going to be my follow-up question yeah. is like, yeah, is yeah, the really drag marginal. different or? No, yeah, yeah, yeah. Really pressure, yeah. yeah. It, it seems like it's pretty marginal. Like the, you know, if prey, like in Monterey, it's common for the krill layer to be like 100, 150 meters, something like right. that. It can be yeah. deeper, it yeah. can be shallower, but like, the point is, if you're a 20, 30 meter animal, you know, that's like traveling three body lengths. It'd be like you traveling like yeah. 15 feet versus two feet, right? Like, what's the difference? Well, and nothing really. Yeah. Their buoyancy, like they're, they become negatively buoyant anyway. So it's like not that hard to dive. I mean, you're, 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 you need to power your swim one way or the other, and then you can yeah. float the other way. Yeah. So it doesn't, you know, yeah, yeah. But, but again, the point here being that if you're a, you know, if you're a 70, 80 foot animal, what who cares if you're going 400 feet deep right like yeah yeah right so i didn't i never i always thought they fed yeah around like 300 feet to like 600 feet but you're saying they can feed it like 1200 feet too well if the prey's down there i think it it, 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 we have seen usually in monterey no because usually in monterey the prey layer is most typically we see it between 50 and 150 meters yeah um it can be deeper it can be shallower but like you know around 100 ish meters plus or minus 50 meters is typically where that krill layer is in monterey but on work that i have not 
participated in personally, but uh, some of our other lab mates have like, like Dave Cade, who I know you had on your show, um, in the Azores, for example, in the North Atlantic, where apparently the water is, uh, you know, it's in, a, it's in the middle of the gyre, so it's pretty oligotrophic, pretty clear water. Uh, they'll, they'll feed down to four or 500 meters, uh, blue and fin, because oh, wow. that's, just, that's just where the food is, right? Yeah. Um, and the difference between 100 meters and 400 meters is like, pff, you know, nothing for them. Yeah. So you know, that's why it's funny, like humpbacks and when they're in, feeding in on the beach here in 60 feet of water and they're 40 feet or, you know, between 30 and 45 feet. And like, they just hit their head every time they go down and they scoop up. Yeah, I mean, and, and you know, and, 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 and you, may, you may know this, but um, if it, there, that's not even the craziest. I mean, there yeah. are there are gray whales up in uh, Washington state that are feeding in like 10, 15 feet of water. Yeah, uh, but they're they're pulling prey off the seafloor, yeah. whereas like a humpback's trying to size up a, like, a mid water uh, column thing <laughs> with like no water to work with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, they're it's pretty amazing what they're able to do, and and Monterey get to see a lot of that stuff. But I mean, the gray whales are incredibly flexible in what they can do. The humpback yeah. whales are incredibly flexible in what they can do. You should have Hannah Clayton on your show. She's a new PhD student in uh, in our lab and. She does a lot of work on the feeding gray whales up in up in oh, Washington cool. State, and um, yeah, she's like, she told tells me that sometimes the water they're in is so shallow, like they can't actually be like fully submerged. The gray whales, yeah, Dang. yeah, it's uh, pretty funny like, to like, watch them. Yeah, like their tails are sticking out and stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's like yeah. you'll see like the back they're half and like you'll see rich. the mud. <laughs> yeah, but you know, but you know, I mean, it's this flexibility that gray whales and humpback whales have in terms of how they feed, what they eat, what they can do that I think has enabled them to be really uh, successful in yeah. the Anthropocene, in the human in human modified oceans, right? Whereas sure. if you're a right whale, if you're a blue whale, these animals that can only really eat one thing, eat in one way, have to have these very constrained life histories. Specialist species. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Specialists in general don't do nearly as well as generalists in the modern world. And we see that across the animal kingdom for the most part, right? I'm sure there's exceptions to this, but in general, you know, we see that across the animal kingdom. And I think the same is true for whales. Humpback whales and gray whales are being are, are doing great right now, relatively speaking. Whereas things like right whales and blue whales are ugh, not doing so great, right? So, yeah. Yeah. Have you so, seen- so, what I mean- oh, sorry. <laughs> <Don't> <laughs> <ask>. <laughs> okay. What I'm hearing is, is I'm not going to see a what, blue whale lunch feeding my entire life. No, you just gotta uh, keep. Well, I mean, you just have to get out <laughs> there a lot. It seems like it seems, it seems like it seems like Slater has the magic uh, magic. I don't even know. Was there, Caitlin, were you there with me? No. Yes. You were there, yeah. Yes. I was, was yeah, gonna tell. There. But I've seen it. Well, that's what I'm saying. Like that was 2016. Like that was well, forever ago. I've seen it since and before. Here we go. Well, it's it's also funny too because some of the some of my favorite you know pictures and videos of blue whale surface lunge feeding are Slater's and. I got in touch with him uh, when our paper was accepted because I was just like, "Oh man, they're gonna, they oh, might yeah, want." I remember talking to you. On they might want to cover for this, and he was basically like, "I don't have any." I was like, "I've seen your pictures of this." And, <laughs> oh, 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 I don't have any photos though. Yeah, okay, okay, don't yeah. Still, yeah, yeah, yeah. I have just video, the video, but you could take it from the video. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. I only have video of it. I don't have any photos. Well, too no, late. No, 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 I'm, mostly, I'm mostly just giving you shit. I, I was. No. You know, <laughs> but you, but you were the first. But, but I, you know, I think about this, and I was, I remember thinking like. They were like, do you like, are you interested in submitting a cover photo? I was like, oh, hell yeah. And oh, I did reach. I remember that. Then you ended up submitting something else, right? Yeah. John Durbin gave us a really yeah. well photo for I it. And we, and we got it, um, yeah. which, which was awesome. That's cool. um, but, you know, hey, it's all right. Next Have time. You seen it? 
when you show Adam the lunch, <laughs> maybe he'll give it to you. Got to get pictures. He's a lot nicer it. than I am. <laughs> no, is have you seen? Yeah, Slater will sell it to you. What's that? Have you seen a blue well from the lab over there? Yeah, only twice, but <laughs> but twice in like four years. But yes, and it's one of those things where when it happens, if someone sees it, like everyone gets notified, oh, yeah, everyone, everyone goes like running out. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I used to call someone who was an assistant in a different lab when I worked on the wharf. I'd call Cheryl and I'd be like, "Hey, go over to the Gold Bogan lab and tell them there's a blue whale outside." <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, it, it's, it's, um, I mean, it's just a really special place to work, obviously. Uh, I'm really lucky. And yeah, I, actually, one of the two blue whales that I've seen from Hopkins was just like a month ago or two months ago, something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, pretty recently. Yeah. Matt, one time there was a surface feeding one yeah. and I called everyone I could think of at the lab and was like, get them outside now. Yes, yes, yeah, so yeah, yeah. That's pretty much, it was actually, it was a little further towards the point, but that's where one fed last fall when I was out. I wasn't there, but I was on the water when they called it out. But um, yeah, you're going to, he's going to end up seeing one Adam before you do from, from the lab. <laughs> <laughs> it's just crazy to me. Like I spent six months with blue whales in Santa Barbara in 2020 and I didn't see a single behavior from them. And I was like, I want to see you do something. Come on. Oh, you like, saw them breathe and flew. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I know. I know. But I wanted to see that like perfect lunch. Gee, I just, I want to see that. Like, like you said, Matthew, like that's the craziest thing that I can think of yeah. in terms of like wildlife biological movements. Like nothing gets crazier than a blue whale opening yeah. its jaw. Like that's yeah, the, and Jer- I think Jeremy's described it. I mean, you gotta have him on his show so I can stop quoting him, and he can just talk himself, and you can have quotes. <laughs> but um, he's gonna say you some- already did the show for him. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um. But I, I think he's described it as like the most biomechanically expensive or impressive. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm messing this up. But just like, crazy. But basically yeah. what, you're, what you're saying, nice. Adam, yeah. It's just crazy. Which is amazing because they're also one of the most efficient animals on the planet. Like when you look at them just swimming, like their swimming mechanics, right. like they're one of the most efficient animals on earth. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're evolutionarily tuned to do this the thing that they're very, they're very kind of limited in their behavioral scope. You know, they, they, mm-hmm feed on one thing in one way only they basically have to migrate along this path right so they're they're very yeah like they're very honed uh to do this one thing but the one thing they do which is migrate and feed they do really really, they're really good at it yeah, <laughs> yeah. they're basically well, big, I'm glad. They're like they're like they're like giant mouths with a motor yeah basically yeah. i'm glad that you answered the gallons question for slater because the day that he flew the drone and that whale was feeding he's like got the remote in his hand and it's just like this light bulb goes on he looks at me he's like can you park a car inside this thing's mouth and well, i was like yeah dude <laughs> no i knew that you could fit like a smart car you know like you know it's always like in their hearts as big as a like that kind of thing but it's like when you see it from the drone and like the especially the one angle i have where it's coming like yeah. kind of head on with the drone I'm yeah. like, you could just drive cars into this thing's mouth yeah. and, and like maybe park two. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, so like what happens when they when they feed is this really unbelievable thing, but like they the jaws go like this, it creates this huge basket. Yeah. And um one of the more special things I've gotten to do uh is work in some of the Smithsonian collections. Uh they're like they have what they call their whale warehouse, which is a giant essentially it's an airplane hanger. <laughs> 
Um, and it's offsite, it's not at the Smithsonian, it's offsite. And they have the largest blue whale bones anywhere, uh, which are their jaw bones. So the largest bones to have ever evolved in any animal of all time are blue whales jaw bones. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and I have a picture of me sitting on them. Um, I think it's like a 95 foot Antarctic blue whale, female, wow. whatever. I've, I've, I can oh say my it. God. But it's a, it's just like it's just incredible to see this uh, and to be able to like really stand yeah, at one end and be like imagine carrying this like they probably weigh you know a couple tons each or something yeah <laughs> imagine and like carrying it on your bone. face what's that yeah and it's you're on the jawbone yeah yeah, yeah. I can send you a picture. yeah let's I, use I, that I, photo for the social media <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. I, I have that yeah we could I could totally send you that one if you remind me um yep I have that one and it's cool. yeah it's pretty it's extraordinary. We'll so, both. <laughs> thinking back to the prey consumption, so some days, you know, they eat an incredible amount of food and it really has to do with the conditions are perfect for that in that place. Yeah. And you can average it across the season if you want, but when you think about like actual effective fisheries management, like what do we do with this information? You know what I mean? Like, how do you help set quotas and protect those places where they're finding those really big days it just seems like so hard to figure yeah. out it has to be fluid you know i don't know yeah, yeah so what you mentioned adam is a, a thing that uh some of my colleagues work on called dynamic ocean management which is this idea yeah. that you know these how we catch stuff where we catch stuff when we catch stuff has to be really responsive to what the environment's doing because you're not talking about you know, logging a forest or, or something like that. You're talking about a really dynamic ocean. Um, and, you know, yeah. So I, I think a lot of this stuff has been decently well worked out in off our coast, right? So right now harvesting krill commercially is, is not allowed off right. the coast of the United States, which I just recently learned. Um, and the reason is because we know it's really important for the whole ecosystem, right? But in Antarctica, uh, we do harvest yeah. krill, yeah. Um, which I'm concerned about, to be frank. And uh, yeah. we know now that we, we're harvesting krill uh, within and amongst and around whales. And so I need, to, I think we really need to be smart about if we're doing that at all. We need to be really smart about how we're doing that, and just some kind of fairly simple, at least in theory, uh, ways to kind of mitigate those potential harms. And again, like you said, basically. We don't need krill to survive. These blue whales, particularly in Antarctica, that are recovering, really do. That's the only thing they eat. And so uh, we, I think we should fish around the margins, if at all, for Antarctic krill and avoid these super dense patches that we know um, everything Vital. swims to seals, to whales, especially, yeah. rely on. Um, but without there being you know, regulations in place, why would a fishery and I don't even blame them, frankly. Why? Because if there's no regulation and no rules, why would a fishery, why would an, an individual commercial fishing boat avoid the best patch right. unless they are not allowed to do it, right? And yeah, so, so they're not. My argument with that would be like educating the fishery on these whales are providing you this krill. Like it's an endless loop. Like the whale But at the pump, end of the day. You know, the whale poop is so important. Everything is... and. Uh, to a certain it all extent, comes down like, to your profit margin though at the yeah, end of the day so if you're gonna set your net more times to fish on the margin it's gonna cost you more money 
for the same amount of haul as if you set the net half as many times in the denser patch. So it's like yeah. for them, it's a numbers thing. Yeah. Which also right. for the whales, it's a numbers thing. It's right. just it's not money. <laughs> Adam, I think this is part of a a deeper philosophical debate that you know we can have another time over over beers or something. Ooh, <laughs> but, that sounds great. But I think an ultimate concern for humanity, and this is like now we're getting into the big picture, right? Which is economies and people work at a much shorter time scale. That, so even if you say the fishery, right? And, and and actually the krill fishery, at least allegedly, there's like this whole ecologically responsive responsible uh, krill fishery that, you know, I'm not clear how much of it is for show and how much of it they actually care about it, but like yeah, they claim yeah. to want to be ecologically responsible, right? Aware, that, yeah. That's all I'll say, right? But ultimately what it comes down to is they're operating as individuals and as a unit on this time scale that is much quicker than whale poop would operate to fertilize phytoplankton. For to grow sure. krill. For I sure. mean, that's a cycle that takes years or decades, right? Yeah. You need your your krill to make your money to feed your family, whatever, yeah, yeah. like this year, this week, this month. So yeah. dealing with those differences in time, For sure. time scales um, in terms of, because yeah, I mean, if we screw the planet, whether it be biodiversity or climate, yeah, whatever it is, we that's, live here. We're all that's like, oh, that's like a later problem. We'll worry about that. Yeah. And we'll worry about that when like everything is collapsing. Yeah. Because we need our X, Y, and Z right now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a big problem. Yep. For sure. Um, I think the last thing I just wanted to talk about briefly was, I mean, you're very passionate about science communication. You've done a great job of communicating your science through our episode. I just, I don't know if you wanted to share any other thoughts about SciCom work that you've done over your career. I know you gave a TED talk while you were at UC Davis about um, marine pollution and all that good stuff. So it's just yeah, you know, I opportunity. Yeah, I'm 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 really passionate about this. I mean, because I like it. Um, but but more than that, you know, I think it's really I think it's like really necessary at this point in time. Yeah, um, for sure. To, to to be doing this, and I think you know, scientists who by and large are funded by you know, taxes basically, ultimately, mm -hmm. um, have a real responsibility to start doing this. We can't, um, we have what I call, scientists have what I call the privilege of knowledge. And I think it should become more and more of a required responsibility to translate that knowledge. Because if you don't translate that knowledge and how does anyone ever know what's going on to then form an opinion yeah. about something to then what's vote the about something, yeah. right? And then scientists are like, oh, well, we're not, you know, we're not changing this or that. It's like, well, how do you think things change, you know? And actually- yeah, There's no uh, point. Yeah. Right, and so what I what I was just doing was I was just bringing up a really, uh, I think, well-worded editorial from the editor-in-chief of Science. Um, and I just quoted this on my Twitter. And so this is a, 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 a quote from that article that, that he wrote. And it says, quote, science must realize that progress is more than just filling journals with knowledge and hoping for the best. We must value and partner with communicators and policymakers who can show that scientific advancement demands that the nation operate as a work in progress. And this is, you know, this was, end quote, and this was, you know, resultant to all the decisions that have happened recently at the federal level relating to, you know, everything from reproductive rights to yeah, yes. regulations and everything, 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 which is that, you know, um, part of this burden of why all this is happening falls on us scientists, I think, for not 
really effectively, not just saying, hey, here's what we found, but even saying like, here's what we found, here's what we mean, and here's what we need to do about that mm-hmm. thing. And I think the reason is because up until very recently, and perhaps still to this day, any form of advocacy is frowned upon in academia, right? Because you need to be completely objective, mm-hmm. you need to be totally detached from your findings, right? But, and that's ideal, but we're not robots, right? I mean, find me anyone is particularly working on a, you know, in an environmental field, but for probably anyone in any form of science, I would imagine, who is objective and dispassionate about what they want to find, what they hope to see, what they hope for it to mean, and, and so on. I just don't think that's realistic. I mean, even if it's yeah. ideal to create the most unbiased science that could possibly exist, yeah. I mean, we're, we're people with emotions and feelings. And so the idea that we shouldn't advocate for what we care about, I think, I think is going away for the most part. And I think that's a good thing because I think we really need people who have the privilege of knowledge like scientists have to also advocate in ways in which they feel comfortable and in, in ways in which the science can support and all that type of thing. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that we should go out and say things that are fringe and, and you know we have no evidence for and so on that really go against what it's, what's, what it's all about to be a scientist Point actually. Science, but, yeah. Yeah, sure. um, but to just say, oh, we can't have an opinion about this and we can't say you know, a government or a people or an individual should do this, that, or the other, you know, to promote sustainability, conservation, and so on, it is, I think that's silly. Uh, and so yeah. I hope I hope to see that become less and less uh, emphasized and we can really speak out in the things that we're, we know about and that we're passionate about. I think also, like, at the end of the day, a lot of what, especially for wildlife science, a lot of what you learn ends up going into the rulemaking for human behavior, right? Like you're learning things and then going, okay, we need to change the conservation strategy for this. So that means you're making rules about people after what you've learned, what science you've done. So like people need an explanation as to why the rules are the way they are. And I also think people don't realize how much science they pay for. You know, like they don't realize that that's what their tax dollars go to. And like, they deserve an explanation of what their money went right. towards. And, and, and also that everything they enjoy is a result, ultimately, when it goes back to it, of some sort of scientific advancement, right? Like if you're enjoying mm-hmm. ab- yeah. absolutely anything and everything, whether it's the food that you're eating or the microphone you're speaking into or the cell phone that you're, whatever it is. I mean, there there's a lot of basic and applied science that got us those products or those things that we're enjoying. And so, yeah. Um, but we can't expect people to understand all this stuff. I'm a scientist and I don't understand a lot of science even within my field, yeah. right? I need it to be translated and I need to be told why I should care about this or that or the other. So how are we supposed to tell people who don't do any form of science for a living, right? Or expect them to know any of this. I mean, yeah. yeah. So that's why I'm really passionate about communicating this stuff. It's like the little piece I think that I can do that ironically might have a bigger impact than any actual science that I might do. <laughs> Because if you get that well-articulated point into the right hands, it could have way more of an impact in the real world than any paper you publish or whatever thing you discover. Definitely. That's That's why we're here, right, whale nerds? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, And that's why, why, you know, ultimately 
when you asked me to be on this show, I, you know, I'm like, yeah, sure. Absolutely. If I can get this message out to even two new people, that would be really great. So yeah, hopefully sure. more than two. Hopefully, that, hopefully more than sure. two. <laughs> There's two right here in this lobby that <laughs> get it now. Well, uh, thank you so much for being on yes. our podcast. This is awesome. Um, we really enjoyed it. So I'm glad you were able to make the time and come on the show with us. Yeah, it was cool. I, I really appreciated it. And, um, you know, uh, hopefully we can meet in person sometime and uh, uh, talk more about this stuff and, and other stuff. And, you know, obviously we're still doing a lot of work on on these topics and others. And, you know, uh, love to update you on what we're finding as as we find it out. Yeah, it sounds great. Also, yeah. thank Do you to over everyone. A couple beers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that'd be awesome and we'll have him back on the podcast in the future. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Um, also, just thank you to everyone that listens to the podcast. Um, we really appreciate all of you for supporting our work and uh, taking the time to listen to us talk about things that we're very passionate about. And uh, yeah, I think that's it. Thanks, everyone. Thank Bye. you. Thanks, guys.